If you would look with me in Ephesians 5, verse 15, after that little hymn that the Apostle Paul wrote, Wake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, Christ will shine on you. He elaborates, starting in verse 15, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. We recognize that Christ is our wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1.30. So we come as wise people, as sages in Jesus Christ with a mandate to walk in the wisdom that we have in Jesus by the Spirit. And we pray that you would teach us more of what that looks like today. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently... I have been reflecting a great deal on the number of Fishervillians who have impacted my family and me spiritually uh, by their examples, by their walks. A case in point is Dan Williams, who died a few years ago. Uh, Many of you perhaps remember Dan. But weeks before his death, he died of cancer, he asked me to preach his funeral. And he gave me his spiritual journal. Now, he had been telling me about this journal for some time, but he gave me that journal to to use at the funeral. Now, the story behind that uh, journal is very interesting. On the day he turned 50 years old, He was reading Psalm 90 in the providence of God. And he was already aware, as all of us are aware who turned 50, how fast and how fleeting time is. And he came to this particular passage in Psalm 90 where it says, verse 10, the years of our life are 70, are even by reason of strength 80. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So on his 50th birthday, Dan reasoned that the psalmist is saying, generally speaking, a person's life is is 70 years. Certainly there are many exceptions to that, but generally speaking, 70 years. And he said, I'm 50. That means, generally speaking, I've got 20 years left. And so he took 20, the number of years that he reasoned he had left based on the psalmist, and he multiplied it by 365, the days in the year. And, of course, the 
the total, after multiplying those numbers, was 7,300 days. And so he wrote on, in his journal, day one, 7,300 days left. Day two, 7,299 days left. Day three, and so forth and so on. And, and this discipline kept him mindful to live wisely. With the countdown on, he did not want to waste a single day in his life. And I read excerpts from his journal at his funeral, and, and they were powerful, to say the least. Every day was filled with, with spiritual disciplines, and, and he would have confession of sin as he was in the Bible, and, and as the Spirit of God convicted him of sin, and, and he would confess those in his journal. Uh, there, this, this journal was filled with, with great commission pursuits as he would talk about the, the person that the Lord gave him an opportunity to share the gospel with. Uh, great commandment pursuits as he was reminded every day to love his neighbor. And so with the countdown on, Dan did not waste a single day. Quite remarkable. Now, Dan only lived to be 67. He didn't even make it to 70. But anyone who knew him would tell you uh, he redeemed his time. And it impacted everyone around him, including last night, my son, Nate, we were having our family devotions. And he didn't even know I was using Dan Williams as an illustration. I don't think I've ever used Dan Williams as an illustration in 11 years here. And he just brought him up. He said, you remember Dan Williams, Dad? I said, yeah, I'm using him as an illustration tomorrow. He said, he was so loving to me when we got to Fisherville. Now, keep in mind, Dan died when Nate was seven or eight years old. And Dan uh, still impacts my son today. That was Dan Williams' life. And Paul would say, that is a good application of today's text. What it means to walk carefully as a wise person. Uh, to walk worthy of the calling, to go back to chapter 4, verse 1. Or to walk as children of light, to consider our passage from last week. Paul in this passage is giving us a portrait of a sage, a wise man, a wise person in Jesus Christ who is our wisdom from God, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And the first thing we see in this passage is a wise person has a wise walk, and that wise walk is a time-redeeming walk. It's a time-redeeming walk. Walk. Look with me in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. This will be the last time that Paul uses that verb walk. He's used it uh, some five times in the book of Ephesians. It refers to our lives, our behavior, our conduct as Christians. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So that word then signals that he's continuing his thought from the previous text. And as we saw last week, uh, you could say that the central theme of this previous passage is found in verse 8, where Paul says, You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's who you are. 
In Jesus Christ, you are light because he is the light of the world. Now walk as children of light. And now he expounds on that. Being light in the world is walking as a wise person. And so Paul's argument here is very clear. It has two parts. As a believer, as one who's been united to Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom from God, you are wise. Now act it. Live it out. Of course, he's picking up on an Old Testament emphasis, a very central emphasis in the Old Testament, wisdom. The, he the Hebrew word for wisdom is chakmah, and it literally means a skilled master. It is someone who is skill, skilled at applying the law of God, someone who is skilled at applying the word of God. And so it's distinct from knowledge. Knowledge always travels faster than wisdom. Just go to a seminary. You'll see people who are, who are growing in knowledge, but that doesn't necessarily mean wisdom. Knowledge always travels faster than wisdom. Wisdom is the ability, the skill at applying the word of God to all the various issues of life. Now you say, could you get more specific? Well, what does it look like to walk as a wise person? And Paul is going to give us some very specific uh, counsel, inspired counsel here. First of all, he says, it is a careful walk. Notice in, in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Um, uh, that word means attentive. It, it means alert. It means mindful. It means vigilant. The wise walk is a vigilant, attentive, uh, alert walk. It, it means, given the context of verse 16, to be sobered to what is a very constant biblical theme. And what is that theme? Let me just give you one verse that really drives home a central theme in the Bible. Psalm 144, verse 4. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. It's hard to believe that when you're 20. It's easy to believe that when you are in middle, middle uh, stage of your life or in late stage of your life. So, therefore, in light of that, this careful walk, the wise person is, notice verse 16, is, to, is making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. This is what it means to walk carefully. This is what it means, Paul says, to walk wisely. Making the best use of of the time. Now, your King James Version, if you have that translation, I like that translation better actually here, redeeming the time. You've heard that verb, redeeming the time. And so this tells us, this is a command, the way you use your time is not morally neutral. It's either righteous, it's either wise, or it's foolish. It's not morally neutral. Now, the verb there is exagorazo. And it, it means to recover from the power of another by paying a price. To recover, to restore from the power of another by paying a price. So knowing that the days are evil. Now, why would he say because the days are evil? I, I, I can think of two reasons. First of all, because the days of e are evil, it's easy to be swept up into the vanity of these days and waste our time. 
But there's another reason I think he would remind us that the days are evil. The way we invest our time can impact an evil culture. And I think that might be the primary reason he uses that language, the days are evil. So knowing that the days are evil, we pay the price needed in our lives so that Jesus might shine on us as the children of light. To say it another way, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 7, we now redeem the time for him. Again, I think redeem is a better translation here. Making the most of every opportunity, seeing every day in every providence as an opportunity. Now, we are children of light in the Lord. We saw that last week, which means we must be intentional in every situation, every relationship, to see our gifts, to see our opportunities in a way that help extend the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the whole theme of this book is Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, God's purpose to sum up all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. And we are agents of that, of that plan and that purpose, taking advantage of every situation because, he says, the days are evil. Now, I want to give you some practical thoughts on this. This is certainly not an inerrant or infallible or exhaustive list. We could probably preach an entire sermon on this. But let me just give you a few practical ways to make the most of every opportunity to redeem the time. First of all, I believe it starts corporately. In our Western culture, we tend to think first and foremost individually. But the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, emphasizes corporate life. And corporate life is messy. It's a whole lot more difficult than just living out your life individually. And yet it is a vital, vital means of grace for every believer. And so it starts corporately to redeem the time, ensure that church life is the center of your family's life. Ensure that church life is the center of your family's gravity. It's not just a box to check. There's too many parents who bring their kids to church, but it's like it's a box to check for the week. But your children can see that for what it is, and it will have a negative impact on them. So think corporately. The way you redeem your time is to schedule family life around church life. Second, Regular family devotions. Now, there are going to be nights you can't do that. Don't be legalistic and don't wear a guilt trip on your back. If you, if you can't have uh, seven nights a week of family devotion, providence and circumstances happen. But have regular family devotions. Open your Bible in the home and, and pray with and for and over your family. Pray for the, ch the church role. Praying for the church role has a twofold effect. It, first of all, the people in your church need prayer. But second, it reminds your children how important the church family is. Pray for worship. Pray for corporate worship. That reminds your children how important corporate worship is. Of course, it certainly has uh, an effect of, of, of being a means of grace for corporate worship itself.
Third, identify an unbeliever or unbelievers in your sphere of influence. And you seek to invest in that relationship with them so that you might evangelize them and lead them to Christ. Every Christian should have someone that they've identified who needs Christ. And you are the agent. You are the missionary for that person. So if you don't have that person, don't feel guilty. Pray that person in. But you need to identify an unbeliever that you can invest in. Fourth, identify a young believer who needs discipling. And you invest in that relationship. Identify a young Christian who needs to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and seek to invest in that relationship. Fifth, identify a mature believer that you can sit at his or her feet and glean from. And, and so identify that person. Ask that person, will you spend time with me? I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better wife. I need to be a better son. I need to be a better daughter. I need to be a better Christian. Or maybe you don't even know Christ and you identify a, a, a more mature, a Christian who can tell you about the gospel, but identify that older person or that more mature person. Sixth, not to be legalistic here, but I deeply encourage you to read the Bible through on a reading plan. That doesn't mean you have to read it through in a year. There are two-year plans. There are three-year plans. You can find them online, four-year plans. But the reason it's important to read through the Bible is that you need Nahum and you need Obadiah. And if you're not reading the Bible systematically, you're not going to read Nahum and Obadiah. And when you get to heaven, they're going to say, how'd you like my book? And you're going to blush. <laughs> we need all 66 books of the canon uh, to grow uh, as, as, we, as we need to grow. And so find a, a reading plan that suits your schedule and read through the Bible and, and learn how to pray the scriptures and memorize particular text or particular chapters or particular books of the Bible. Seventh, have scheduled time with your spouse and have scheduled time with your family. That's a very important responsibility. In fact, some of you stay-at-home moms, you may be in a season where you don't really have time to disciple someone else outside of your family. Don't feel that guilt. There's, there's different seasons of life. But we certainly need to schedule time with our families and our spouses. Ninth, enjoy leisure activities for the purpose of regrouping, but you need to have a time budget. Uh, there's a new verb out today called binge watching, right? Well, let me just tell you, binge watching is not redeeming the time. Binging leisure time is not redeeming the time, and the days are evil. And then tenth, I would encourage you to budget time every day. Or uh, for, for me, there's particular numbers of pages that I want to read every day. Budget time to read good Christian books written by solid Christian authors, and it's a form of discipleship. You can sit at the feet of these authors and learn about prayer and learn about theology, learn about the Christian walk, but budget time every day 
reading Christian literature. You sit at the feet of those who have gone before you. Paul says, wise people redeem the time. And that's why the reformer, uh, Philip Melanchthon, in the 16th century got this. He, he kept note, get this, of every wasted moment. Now, that might be a little high-strung, uh, but it, it really is a, a challenge. He, he took note of every wasted moment, and he brought that list to the Lord every evening in confession. So if you know you're going to be confessing uh, the sin of wasting your time, you may be less likely to waste the time. Uh, somebody once advertised as follows, uh, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes. No reward offered, for they are gone forever. And this concern drove Jonathan Edwards. Many of you know who Jonathan Edwards was. He wrote those famous resolutions before he was 20 years old. And one of his resolutions, his 70th, was this, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. And I know this is a countercultural approach. For sure. But verse 17, as we're about to see, makes clear this is God's will for every Christian. The antithesis of this is the foolish life, a foolish approach to life. Look with me in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish. In other words, Make the best use of your time. The days are evil. Don't be foolish. Don't be a fool here. There's so much at stake. But understand what the will of the Lord is here. Now the context here is you understand it is the Lord's will that you redeem the time. That is God's will for you. To waste time is foolish. It's the Lord's will for every Christian to steward his or her life. And that's why in the 17th century, uh, William Penn was correct when he said, time is what we want most, but what, alas, we use worst. And for which God will surely most strictly reckon with us when time shall be no more. You know, we oftentimes, we tend to, and I, I tend to do this too, and you may be guilty of this, to prioritize learning what the Lord's hidden and secret will is. And so when you're growing up, you're, you're trying to discern the Lord's will for a future spouse or uh, the town you're going to live in or the school you're going to go to and uh, the job you're going to take, whatever it may be. And, and those are important things. But remember, Deuteronomy 29, 29, a very important verse says, the secret things belong to the Lord God, the things revealed belong to us. And what the Lord has revealed already as his will, if we aren't stewarding that, why would we think that he would ever reveal his hidden will to us? And it is the Lord's will here that every Christian redeem the time. Now, the second way in which believers are to walk wisely 
In addition to redeeming the time, having a time-redeeming walk, we see in the rest of this passage, verses 18 to 21. The wise walk is a spirit-filled walk. Look with me in verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now, let me just say here, in verses 18 to 21, we're going to see two commands. Both commands are found in verse 18. One's a negative command, and, and one's a positive command. And then it's going to be followed by five participles. Now, what is a participle? It, they all have the I-N-G, all right, suffix. Uh, and so we'll see those five participles, but this is all one argument. And so these, these five participles are... Uh, if you see in the text, addressing, singing, making melody, giving thanks, being submitted to one another. Those are the five participles. But the first command, do not get drunk with wine. Of course, you could add to that or any other substance, uh, whether it be uh, marijuana. There are, there are movements even within uh, the church in America to, to legalize marijuana. Now, I've never smoked marijuana, but I assume that the reason you smoke it is to get high. And, and, and being high is the same idea as being drunk. This is a command. It, it is, it's a negative command, but it is a command. Do not get drunk. Now, according to the 2019, this was the most recent uh, study I found, the 2019 National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Get this, 25.8% of people surveyed ages 18 and older in the United States reported that they had engaged in binge drinking at least once in the past month. That's over 25%, over one quarter of the people surveyed in the last month. Now, the scriptures would say this is nothing but insanity. Uh, Proverbs has many warnings about drunkenness. For instance, Proverbs 23, 20. Be not among drunkards. Be not among them. For the drunkard will come to poverty. Who has wounds without cause? Those who tarry long over wine. Now, this is not a moralistic or legalistic pulpit. And so we have to be very honest here and say that the scriptures do not absolutely forbid all forms of alcohol. I don't personally drink. I lost both my grandfathers. One when my dad was seven. Uh, he committed suicide in a, in a drunken stupor. And then I lost my other grandfather when I was in college at the age of 63 because of the damage done to his heart from his years of alcohol abuse. Um, but with that said, moderate use of alcohol is a liberty issue. But we do need to have questions we ask. We need to ask 
We need to make wise decisions even when the use of our liberty. And this is why I think Vaughn Roberts is helpful. He offers five questions. I'm going to add a sixth at the end to ask ourselves when it comes to issues of Christian liberty. Things that the scriptures do not explicitly or by implication forbid. First of all, does the Bible allow it? If not, it's forbidden. And what the Bible does not allow is not good for us, right? And so the Bible does not allow drunkenness. And so if the Bible um, allows it, then you're on free ground. But if not, it is forbidden for every Christian. Second, does my conscience allow it? God has given every believer, every person a conscience. And if you are going against your conscience, Romans is very clear on that, um, then don't do it. Third, what is the effect on other Christians? What does my act, how does my act affect other Christians? Love is more important than knowledge. Now, what do we mean by knowledge there? You may have the knowledge that you can partake in something, but given a cultural situation, is it the most loving thing you can do? Fourth, what is the effect on non-Christians? You may feel that you have the freedom to partake in a particular act, but what is the effect on non-Christians? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, I will give no offense in anything so that my ministry will not be blamed. So if I'm in a culture that forbids bananas, I may know, man, that thing is filled with potassium, but I'm not going to eat bananas because my ministry and my testimony is more important than my freedom. And then, fifth, what is the effect on my spiritual life? Does this benefit me spiritually? Spiritual health is more important than freedom. I want to add a sixth. What is the effect on your spouse? What is the effect on your children? Those are questions that you need to ask. Of course, though Scripture never absolutely forbids alcohol, keep in mind, and there's been a whole lot of studies on, here, on this, the wine of biblical times was not as strong as the marketed, unmixed wine that we see in the stores today or we see on television. And so it's like playing with fire. It's like playing with fire. The problem, um, and there is a fine line between enjoying something moderately and coming under its influence. There's a fine line there. The problem with with drunkenness is at least twofold. I'm sure you could give more reasons for the problem. First of all, it, to be a person who feels the need to be drunk, um, it, it reveals that you don't believe the Lord's enough. You don't believe He's satisfying enough. You don't believe that at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. But as I was reminded when I was working out with the boys yesterday and an old Cademan's Call song came on. And in, the, in that song, the lyrics read, you created nothing that gives more pleasure than you. 
You created nothing that gives more pleasure than you. And man, my heart resounded when I heard those lines. Because it's true. And a person who feels like they need to get drunk are saying, you are not enough. You need supplementing. Which is nonsense and wicked. And idolatry to the core. The second reason it's a problem is Paul says right here, it leads to debauchery. It leads to debauchery. And that's not a word we often use. Now, what does it mean when he says it leads to debauchery? Corruption of fidelity. Corruption of faithfulness is debauchery. And seduction from virtue and seduction from duty. That's what debauchery is. And what is our, our duty? What is our most virtuous act. It's to be under the submission of God in Jesus Christ. And a person who commits to drunkenness is saying, you are not Lord. I will not be under your dominion. I'll be under the dominion of the vine. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 5 and in 1 Corinthians 6, the drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's so much at stake here. On the contrary, he says, and this is the second command in this passage, but be filled with the Spirit. It's just interesting how he juxtaposes that. He seems to be saying, if you had more of God, you wouldn't feel the need to abuse alcohol. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, this language of feeling we've seen throughout Ephesians. In Ephesians 1.23, it says that Paul tells us that Christ is filling the church. In Ephesians 4.10, it says that he was exalted that he might fill all things. And one of the evidences of that is that he is filling believers with his spirit. Now, this one short line drives home some very important truths about the Christian life. Just one little line here. Be filled with the spirit. First of all, it's in the imperative mood. What does that tell us? It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not advice. It's not an opinion. Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. It is a command. Every Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. Second, it's in the plural form. Now, why is that important? Well, again, this is a corporate endeavor. The Christian life is a corporate endeavor. Uh, there's no Lone Ranger Christians in the Scripture. Now, I realize... There are people who are providentially hindered from attending corporate worship. And, and those people are not in sin. But in the normal course of things, the Christian life is a corporate endeavor. And one of the ways we, are, we know that we're filled with the Spirit, by the way, is that we show supernatural love and peace and patience and kindness in circumstances and in relationships that try us and test us. You can come across really loving when you're by yourself. Or you can, have, you can come across really peaceful in your soul when things are going smoothly. But get involved in a local church. You'll find out if that's real love produced by the Spirit. If that is real peace produced by the Spirit. Third, it's in the passive voice, this command, be filled. And why is that important? It's not something that we do. It's something that God does. 
And yet, what have I said throughout my time here? We are compatibilist. God is sovereign, but we have responsibility. And so he's commanding them to be filled, even though it's something that God does. And so what does that mean for us? What is our responsibility in the process of being filled with the Spirit? It is a constant, moment by moment, repentant turning from what grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul has already said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So it is a constant, consistent, moment by moment, turning, repentant turning from that which grieves the Holy Spirit. And as Psalm 105 of many texts exhorts, by the way, in the context of singing and worshiping, seeking the Lord and his strength, seeking his presence continually, which we know supremely in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, and by his spirit. And then fourth, you didn't know so much was in this line, did you? It's in the present tense. Now, why is that important? It's not that just something that happens once. Uh, in Ephesians 1, it says, when you believe in Jesus, you are sealed with the Spirit. That happens once. You can't be sealed again. But there is one sealing, but there are many fillings. And so it's in the present tense. The Spirit-filled life is the Christian life. Everything else is masquerade. It's costume jewelry. It is, it is sub-Christian. John Stott points out that a person who's drunk is under the influence of alcohol. And a person who is filled with the Spirit is under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit. He said, but it's wrong-headed to think that to be filled with the Spirit is kind of a, a spiritual inebriation. A spiritual drunkenness where we lose all control. You've seen some of those services. No, it's just contrary. Because the fruit of the Spirit, what does Paul say in Galatians 5? It is self-control. So to be filled with the Spirit is to gain control. A supernatural gift. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that alcohol... Pharmacologically speaking, I didn't know I could, if I could pronounce that. I haven't tried all week because I thought I'd pull a hamstring. So I've been waiting for this moment. Uh, I'm not going to try it again. Uh, he says it's not a stimulant. Alcohol is a depressant. Now, Martin Lloyd Jones was a doctor before he came into uh, the ministry. Furthermore, it depresses, that is, alcohol depresses that very important part of the brain that controls everything that gives a person self-control, that gives a person wisdom and understanding and discrimination and judgment. In other words, everything that makes a person behave at his or her noblest, alcohol suppresses that. That's the danger of it. And in particular, the abuse of alcohol. What the Spirit does, however, is just the opposite. He says if alcohol is a, a depressant, the Spirit is a stimulant. And, and so in pharmacological terms, he stimulates every faculty that makes us what we are as the image of God. He stimulates our mind, our intellect, our heart, 
our affections and our will to love and obey God, which is not natural to us in the Old South. I mean, consider how Paul paints the contrast. The fruit of drunkenness, debauchery. The fruit of the Spirit, well, he says elsewhere is love and joy and peace and so forth. But here, in verses 19 to 21, he lays out the result of being filled with the Spirit with regard to worship. And he uses five participial phrases. Let's just go through these briefly. First of all, verse 19. When a man or woman, a Christian, is filled with the Spirit, they are addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, as we get into this, I want you to consider this. Not only do Spirit-filled believers serve as a tangible sign of Christ's victory, His cross and His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of the Father, but we also serve as agents. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, as unbelievers come into a service and they see God's people worshiping in spirit and in truth, they know God is there and it serves an evangelistic purpose. And so that's a vital reason Christians are to be filled with the Spirit. Worship is a key part of this. It's the key fruit, in other words, of a Spirit-filled life. Believers who are Spirit-filled are addressing one another. So it's horizontal here in Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, we, we could talk about Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and what those distinctions are. I certainly believe the Psalms are in the Psalter. And, and then there are hymns that were written in the day that spoke of uh, orthodoxy, uh, Christology, and, and other important doctrines and spiritual songs may have been um, something that they did spontaneously. It's just hard to say. But the point here... Spirit-filled believers addressing one another reminds us that when we are spirit-filled, we are concerned with each other's spiritual edification. That's more important to us than anything else. There may be disagreements in a church, but we are more concerned with each other's spiritual edification. We are speaking to one another. We are addressing one another. And again... This is addressing, reminding us that the Spirit-filled life is a corporate life unless providentially hindered. Now, I think it's interesting that in the parallel text in Colossians chapter 3, Paul does not say, be filled with the Spirit. Here's what he says. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Is he contradicting himself there? No. Paul says you cannot separate the Word from the Holy Spirit. We're not mystics. The Spirit is, is the one who breathed out the very Word of God. And so the Spirit-filled life is a life in which the believer is letting the Word of Christ richly indwell him or her. And the fruit of that is addressing one another, singing in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The second and third participles are found in the next part of that, verse 19, Believers who are spirit-filled are singing and making melody to the Lord. So you go from addressing one another to making melody to the Lord with their hearts. And so the first part of that verse stresses the horizontal dimension of worship. 
And here, the emphasis is vertical, to the Lord. That is, the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, yes, this involves private worship, but the emphasis is corporate. And then the fourth phrase we see in verse, verse 20, giving thanks, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers who are spirit-filled give thanks. We talked about this a few weeks ago when he was talking about um, in verse, verse 4, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a means of grace to overcome our sin. One of our real problems is that we doubt the goodness of God. And so as a result of that, we believe that God needs supplementing. He, we need to take multivitamins, in other words, because God's not enough. And what the discipline of thanksgiving does is it reminds us of how great He is. I encourage you to to start a grace journal where you just take note every day of the graces and the gifts the Lord has entrusted to you that day. And, and it'll, do, it'll do two things for you. First of all, you will develop the muscles for learning how to see the goodness of God in your life. People who see the goodness of God aren't discontented. The people who see the goodness of God aren't anxious and they're not jealous. So that will help you develop the muscles for seeing God's goodness. Second reason a grace journal would be helpful is how often does the scripture tell us to remember his works of old? We have short memories. And, and that journal can be something that you can look back at and say, man, Lord, you are so good. And Paul is saying that's the spirit-filled life. He qualifies it with four modifiers, and we'll just go through these quickly. He says, giving thanks always. Always. Isn't that remarkable? That's the Christian life. That's the spirit-filled life. Always. Secondly, for everything. For everything. All circumstances. Third, to God the Father. This is why we approach the Lord. We come to the Father because He's the creator, the sustainer, the architect of all things. And it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means you are, you are coming to the Father and can only come to Him because of the merits of the Son. You're a sinner just like I am. Sinners cannot come into the presence of a holy God. But because of the merits of the Son, because He has fulfilled all righteousness, because He has made atonement for our sins and He's been raised... And because we have been united to Christ, we now can come into the presence of God or clothed, or the Father clothed in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then fourth, uh, he says, or the fifth uh, participle to end this text, he says, spirit-filled believers are always submitting Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now we're going to talk more about that next time when we get into wives and husbands. But the word submit means submission to someone who's in an appropriate authority. And that is a, a we're not called to submit to every person. We're called to submit to appropriate authority. So Jesus submitted to his parents, Luke 2.51. 
Demons submitted to the disciples, Luke 10, 17. Citizens are to submit to the government, uh, Romans 13. Christians are to submit to God, Hebrews 12, 9. The church is to submit to elders, 1 Peter 5, verse 5. So Christians are not called to submit to everyone, but we are called to submit in appropriate circumstances. And I want to leave you with this. When was the last time we saw this word submit? Well, it's found all the way back in chapter 1, verse 22. It's very interesting. And we'll pick this up next time. It says in chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things under his feet. That verb, submit, is right there in the original language. All things were brought in submission. It's the same verb we see in verse 21. All things were brought in submission to the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. This means that when we are submitting to the appropriate authorities in our life, we are signaling that Christ indeed is fixing the sin-broken and fractured world. A world that hates submission. A world that hates authority. But when a Christian submits to the appropriate authorities in his or her life, he or she is saying, Jesus Christ has been raised. All things have submitted to him, and I am the evidence of that. So there you have it. That's the wise walk, according to Paul. It's a walk that's time-redeeming, and it's a walk that is spirit-filled. Every other path, every other path is the path of foolishness. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. We are wise in Christ, but we need that wisdom worked out in our lives. We need details. We need uh, to be given our marching orders. And we've been given them through the inerrant and infallible word of God this morning. Fill us with your spirit, Lord, today, that we may walk wise, redeeming the time. And we pray, Lord, that if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, oh, Lord, today they would bow their knees to King Jesus that they would see through the baptism of John Omer that you're a saving God. And Lord, that they would hear through the preaching of the word that you're a saving God, that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. And there is no sinner beyond the pale, no sinner beyond your grace. And we pray today you would save them by convicting them of their sin, by showing them that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. We ask these things in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, our wise man. Amen.